In Galatians 3, 1 through 9. It's Galatians 3, 1 through 9. This is the word of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Amen. As I was going over this passage and listening to the words of the Apostle Paul, I was reminded of how many times I've been taken in by a scam. How many of you have been taken in by a scam? You don't have to show your hands, but uh, there I say uh, too many of us have been taken in by what appeared to be a good thing, a good deal, and found out that we were actually the ones who were on the end of a bad, bad, bad deal, even a trick. Most of us can remember a few years ago how amazed and surprised we were when we heard of Bernie Madoff and how he was able to scam people over a period of 20 years out of some $60 billion. When I first heard that, I said, no, somebody missed it. They mean $60 million. Nobody can take $60 billion from people. And lo and behold, over a 20-year period, in what has been called the most extravagant Ponzi scheme in the history of the world, he milked people for $60 billion. Most of us have not been taken in by such scams like that, but perhaps those of you who are from New York, you're quite familiar with the um, three-card monster, Right? As you know, and as my wife will tell you, and as my kids will tell you, you can't win. You can't win that street game. You can't win that trick because the immediate, as soon as you become involved in it, you have been bewitched. You have been tricked. And you will lose, not just the game, but you're going to lose your money. You know, it's one thing to be tricked and even to be scammed out of some money because of a Ponzi scheme. And it's one thing to be tricked and scammed out of some money by a street card trick. But it's an altogether different thing, beloved, 
to be scammed and tricked out of the gospel. On the one hand, you may lose a few dollars or you may lose a lot of dollars, but on the other hand, being scammed and tricked out of the grace of God may cause you to lose your soul. One has serious temporal implications, but the other one has serious and sober eternal implications. And this is what Paul is dealing with when he's dealing with the Christians in Galatia. For they have had those who have come in the church behind him and behind his preaching of the faithful gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have come in behind him and they have begun to teach in his absence a gospel that is no gospel, as you might recall. That they are preaching a God that is no God. That they are preaching a Christ that is no Christ. That they are proclaiming a good news that is ultimately bad news and destructive news altogether. And when Paul had heard and learned this from the Galatian churches where he had ministered the gospel so faithfully, he was irate, beloved. He was livid. And you can see it in the first chapter as we read how his words were serious and sober words. And even as you come to Galatians chapter 3, you get a sense again of the seriousness of what the issue is that Paul and the Galatians are dealing with, how serious the gospel is. And you get a sense of Paul's desire for the Christians in Galatia to know the need for a consistent, God-exalting message of grace through Jesus Christ. Not just believed upon, but then lived every moment of every day. And any other message than the message of salvation by grace should cause us then as it calls Paul to respond. To respond as Paul did with indignation. To respond as Paul did with questioning, with his inquisitions. To respond as Paul did with his insistence upon the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what you see in our text this morning. As Paul once again was addressed addressing this issue that has crept into the churches in Galatia. You see Paul's indignation concerning this false gospel. You see his interrogation of the Galatians as they are being tricked and scammed into believing this false gospel. And then ultimately you see his insistence that there is only one gospel, always has been, always will be. And that is the gospel that saves. But let's examine it real briefly and see if we can't learn how to respond in like matter as the apostle 
Paul did. Notice his indignation as the text began in verse 1. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians. And these are strong words, beloved. Now, Paul has used strong words prior to this in chapters 2 and 1. But those were kind of general strong words. Now Paul gets personal. He wants to start calling names. You foolish Galatians. He calls them foolish. The word there means senseless. Not having understanding. Without a sound mind. A foolish person, beloved, lacks discernment. It doesn't mean that they are totally ignorant of all things. It just means that they lack discernment. They are not able to discern that you shouldn't put your money down at a three-card money game. They don't understand that. They lack that discernment at that moment. And therefore, Paul says, you are foolish. You're lacking discernment. And you can hear it. You can hear Paul's passion in his words, don't you? Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, he's using this word foolish not in a loathing term, as sometimes, unfortunately, we use the word foolish. Describe somebody that we don't like. Paul's not doing that because he doesn't like the Galatians. He's doing it, actually, because he loves the Galatians. And this is not a term loathing them as much as it is a term loving them and says, why have you been so foolish? Kind of language I use with my kids from time to time. It's not that I loathe them at that moment, but my love and passion for them to stay on the right course, you are foolish to, to deter from this path. That's what Paul says. Oh, foolish Galatians. And they were foolish because they have been fooled. Notice what he says. Who has bewitched you? Bewitched. Not that Elizabeth Montgomery kind of twinkle your nose and not that bewitched, but they have been tricked. They have been slanderously deceived. Someone has crept in and played a trick on them. This elaborate scheme as it was to rob them of the grace of God. Who has tricked you? Who has bewitched you? Who has cast this evil spell on you is what he is saying. There is an evil spell that has been cast over the Galatians, beloved, because it is inherently evil to depart from the grace of God. It is not simply, understand this, those who depart from the grace of God, it is not simply a work of their own heart. Indeed it is, but it is also the work of the evil one. For what Satan desires more than anything else is for you and I to turn from the grace of God and to turn unto ourselves and begin to believe that our lives are in accordance with our own doing. 
The minute you start believing that you are saved because of what you did, the minute you start believing that you stay saved because of what you do, you have been bewitched. You have been tricked. You have been scammed. It is not simply a work only of the human heart. Indeed, it is. But it is also, beloved, the desire, the plot, and the scheme of the evil one to steal the joy of your salvation and to get you to no longer trust in the good God, but to trust in yourself. When they had been tricked, beloved, they had been deceived, they have had this spell, Paul says, as it was, cast over you. And who had tricked them? Well, they weren't tricked by the apostles. Paul said, it wasn't me who tricked you because you know when I was in your midst, I preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that what he says? That Christ crucified was preached and proclaimed, vividly portrayed before your eyes. That's what he said, publicly and vividly, clearly portrayed. You know what Paul preached when he was in their midst. He preached what he always preached. He preached Christ and him crucified, as he told the Corinthians over and over again. We knew nothing in your midst except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we preached. And now he tells the Galatians, when I was with you, what did I preach? Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Paul says, we just didn't preach it, but we preached it vividly. It was clearly portrayed. He said, we had billboards, we had websites, we had apps, <laughs> we used it all, PowerPoint, whatever we put before you Christ, and it was clear, www.christcrucified.com, check it. The cross, beloved, here Paul is reminding the Galatians, and he's reminding us too, that whenever you find yourself tempted, tempted as it was to turn away from the grace of God and turn unto your own self and to begin to look to your own self for assurance, begin to look to your own self for acceptance to God. Paul says here, look once again to the cross. That's what we preach. It was portrayed before you. Look again there. And what do you see, beloved? You see Christ. You see the gospel. Because the crucifixion of Christ is the key to the gospel. That's it. Whenever self-doubt comes in, look again to the cross. Whenever self-sufficiency creeps in, look again 
to the cross. Whenever self-righteousness begins to creep in, look again to the cross. And what do you see there at the cross? You see the Lamb of God who has taken away all of your sins. That's what you see. Look again to the cross. And what do you hear? You hear Christ there being crucified and his final words before he dies. It is finished. It is complete. Your salvation has been accomplished. All that is necessary for you to be right and accepted with God has been done. Look to the cross. For I love the song that says, Down at the cross where my Savior died. Down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood applied. Singing glory, glory, glory to his name. Beloved, you look to the cross, and that's why we preach Christ and him crucified. Because it is there that it has been finished. Complete atonement, the song says. Thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid, whatever thy people owed. Whatever. Whatever you believe you owe to God, Christ has paid it. Whatever you believe God is, ne- is in need of in order to accept you into his beloved, Christ has done it. Complete atonement thou hast made to the utmost farthing paid. Whatever, whatever, whatever your people owe. And to undermine that, beloved, Paul says, when they, when you take your eyes off of the cross of Christ, you make the cross of none effect. And that, beloved, is foolish. Foolish. Don't be bewitched. Be indignant at such things. But notice that Paul's indignation gives way to his interrogation of the Galatians. For he, he asks them, doesn't he, a series of questions. Very inquisitive at this point. Beginning in verse 2, he says, but, 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 but let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. It's kind of like my wife. Whenever my wife comes to me and uh, she sits down, she says, I have a question. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. One of her favorite words, one of her favorite lines. She comes to me and says, I have a question. <laughs> and here is Paul. Paul comes to them and says, let me ask you a question. Now, Paul doesn't ask questions. Much like God does, or Jesus did, you know, God and Jesus, they don't ask questions for information. They're not looking for direction. They're not pulling over and saying, can you help me get to such and such and such and such, as we do. Paul is not here asking questions for information. He already knows the answers to the questions. 
These are rhetorical questions. These are insightful questions. These are probing questions. And these are necessary questions. These are questions that Paul already knows the answer to, and the Galatians should know the answers also. This morning, you and I should know these answers as well. It's a question of faith. He asks four questions I want to submit to you. Uh, The first is a question of faith. The second is a question of the flesh. The third is a question of futility. And the fourth, again, is another question of the faith. The first one is a question of the faith, isn't it? He says, how did the Holy Spirit come to you? In other words, did God grant his Holy Spirit by his doing or by your doing? See now that you want to listen to these false teachers who are trying to convince you that not, even though you might be saved by grace, now you are to live by your own effort. Paul says, question one, did the Holy Spirit come to you by God's doing or by your doing? Well, beloved, uh, just a quick, a quick survey of the scriptures reminds us that the Holy Spirit is a what? Gift of God, isn't it? He? He's a gift of God. People don't earn the Holy Spirit as if he is some type of reward. You receive the Holy Spirit because he is a gift, a gift from God that God has been pleased to grant to his people to cause them to come alive unto him that they may know the purpose for which they have been created. You, you, didn't, you didn't work that out. In fact, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, the Holy Spirit is called a gift. You shall receive the gift of Holy Spirit. But this is something that was promised in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, there's a couple of passages that remind us that as God promised that he would work new life in a new people for his glory, he says in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. Then he goes on to say in Chapter 37 and verse 14, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Why? Because Holy Spirit is a gift. And they knew this. They knew that their encounter with God was the working of the Spirit of God in their life. And they knew the work of His of the Spirit. They knew the work of His power unto salvation. They knew the work of His gifts. They knew of the work of the fruit of Holy Spirit in their midst. And do you see that? The power of the Holy Spirit to save and regenerate is according to God, not you. The gifts of the Holy Spirit as He gives to people as He wills is according to the power and working of God, not you. The fruit of Holy Spirit as it's being worked out and up in your life is a result of God's doing in your life, not you. 
over and over and over again. You see, beloved, that God doesn't grant the Holy Spirit because we are good. He grants the Holy Spirit because he is gracious. So, question one. Did the Holy Spirit come to you by what you did or by what God did? Answer, by what God did. Question two is a question of the flesh. Can the flesh, Paul says, can the flesh make you holy? In other words, he says, the work of God's grace is not only in saving us, but also in keeping us saved. He says, now, you have begun in the Spirit. Do you think that now you can make yourself perfect by the flesh? Do you think that the Spirit puts you on the road, then leads you to work out your own direction and way in life? He sets you on the road to heaven, then goes about his business and determines that you're going to find the rest of the way on your own. God forbid, beloved. God forbid. For the work of Holy Spirit is not simply that we get saved, the work of Holy Spirit is that we stay saved. You think you're going to begin in the Spirit, but then you're going to come to completion. You're going to make yourself perfect by the working of your own flesh and doing. The fact of the matter is, Paul wants the Galatians to know, beloved, and us as well, that we are not only saved by the grace of God, but we live every moment of every day by the grace of God. The Christian life is not only begun in the Spirit, but every step of every way is filled and led by the Spirit of God. Every moment of every day. You ever wonder why the Bible speaks of Jesus in the terms of being the author and finisher of our faith, to being the first and the last, the alpha and the omega? He's the author of our faith because we have no faith apart from him. We have no faith apart from the Spirit of God working in our lives. But it doesn't just begin with him. The Bible says that he is the finisher. He is the completer. He is the one who brings our faith to its full maturity. Beloved, if you begun in the Holy Spirit, you will be made complete in the Holy Spirit. Understand, beloved, no one, no one makes themselves holy. No one. Holiness is not a result of human effort anymore than salvation is. Holiness ultimately is a result of trusting in the finished work of Christ. That's holiness. And believe me, the more you trust in Christ, the more holy you will be. That's true holiness. 
This is why the Christian life is not just a list of do's and don'ts. The Christian life is a life of done. Done in Jesus. Done in Jesus. Now I live my life trusting in that finished work. And those who are most holy are those who are simply trusting the most, beloved. They're trusting. They're resting in Jesus. They began in Jesus. They will be brought to completion in Jesus. As my man Tripp Lee said, we started in the cross and we continue in the cross alone. That's it, beloved. You began with the cross. You continue in the cross because you will be brought to completion by way of the cross. That's why Paul will say later on in Galatians chapter 6, my only boast is where? In the cross. Started in the cross, and will be brought to completion in the cross alone. Answer the question too, obvious, isn't it? Did you think you began in the spirit and now you're going to be brought to completion by the flesh? No. No. We started in the spirit, we'll be brought to completion by the spirit through the love of the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus. Question three is a question of futility. Did you suffer in the gospel in vain? In other words, Paul is saying, now consider, have you endured so many things for nothing? It is obvious that the Galatians had endured many things for being Christian. And since they have endured so many things for believing in Christ and Christ alone, why now would you make all that you endured in vain? Why would you give the impression that it was all for naught, that it was a sense of futility? And we are not told what the Galatians suffered, but we know that the early church endured much, beloved. All Christians endured greatly at the hands of friends and family and government and all those around them, employees, employers. They suffered, beloved, because of Christ. None suffered any more than the Apostle Paul. In fact, he tells us, he gives us a list of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24 and following, doesn't he? talks about how many times he'd been beaten with rods and lashes, how many times he had been stoned and shipwrecked, how he endured sickness and disease and dangerous journeys, how he went hungry, how he had sleepless nights, how he endured false accusations, and on and on and on and on. And Paul said, I did all that for the sake of the gospel. And why would I now turn away from the gospel and make all of that suffering in vain? I didn't suffer that because I was a Pharisee. 
I didn't suffer that because I was Jewish. I suffer that because I trust in Jesus. And if I stop trusting in Jesus and once again begin to trust in myself, I make all of that suffering for nothing. Paul is reminding them. They didn't suffer because they were Jews. And those who were coming into the church at the time trying to convince them that they needed to be more Jewish in their Christianity, Paul says, you didn't suffer because you were not Jewish enough. You didn't suffer because you weren't circumcised. These people coming in here trying to convince you that you need to be circumcised, that you need to keep the Sabbath, that you need to get involved in the Jewish synagogues. You didn't suffer because you were involved in the synagogues. You didn't suffer because you were circumcised. You suffered because you trust in Christ and him alone. Why now would you make all of that suffering for nothing? You know what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16? He says, if you're going to suffer, beloved, let it be for being a Christian. Hey, suffering is going to be inevitable. So if you're going to suffer, suffer for trusting in Christ. Suffer for being a Christian. Don't suffer for your own foolishness. Suffer for being Christian. Suffer for Christ. Every day, lean on Jesus. Walk in the Spirit. And when suffering comes, you know that that suffering is not in vain. It is for the cause of the gospel. Question three. Did you suffer all those things in, in vain? And the answer to that one is, no, unless Paul says, unless it really was in vain because then you have truly turned away and you really didn't know Christ in the first place and you made that profession for naught. But if you really did believe in Jesus and what you have endured is not in vain. For the Lord sees and the Lord knows Whatever you have lost, he will restore to you a hundredfold all that you have lost for his namesake. Question four is once again a question of faith, isn't it? Is God at work in your midst through faith or through your own doing? In other words, does God manifest his goodness to you because you are good? Or does he manifest his goodness to you because he is good? God is in work in your midst. The power of God, the blessings of God, the goodness of God, beloved, are always in accord with the grace of God, not with our own works and accomplishments. It is evident that the Galatians had seen the power of God. 
They had witnessed the mighty power of God, even to the working of miracles in their midst. And Paul is reminding them, now, when you beheld the miraculous power of God in your midst, when you saw the goodness of God in your midst, was that goodness of God in your midst by faith, or was God simply obliged to do it because you were so good? The fact of the matter is, beloved, when God did his work in their midst like he does in the midst of our lives, he does it not because of us, but he does it because of himself. He does it for our good, but ultimately he does it for his glory. And if any of us had to be good enough in order for God to do a work in our lives, we would never see or behold the work of God. This is a reminder. I think it should be a reminder to us. I get a sense that this is what Paul is reminding the Galatians, that Christianity really is not about you. The Christian life, the Christian faith is not about me. It is not about you. I know a lot of times we like to think it is, and, and, and we like to make it about us. But it's really not about you. In fact, when Jesus was calling his disciples and talking to his disciples about discipleship in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, what does he say to them? He says, if anyone would come after me, what does he have to do? He has to deny himself. Why? Because it's not about you. You have to deny yourself. You have to take your eyes off of yourself. You have to put your eyes focused on Christ. God's work in our midst happens, beloved, as we look away from ourselves and we begin to look to Jesus. That's when you see the work of God. That's when it happens. This is why it's, 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 it's futile and even foolish, beloved, to examine yourselves in the sense and be asking yourself the kind of questions of, did I pray long enough? Was my quiet time deep enough? Did I give enough? Have I prayed fervently enough? Am I fasting frequently enough? Beloved, whenever... Whenever, don't miss this, whenever you are tempted to ask the enough questions, hear God saying, no, but Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Pray, but don't trust in your prayers. You trust in Jesus. Fast, but don't trust in your fasting. You trust in Jesus. Give, but don't trust in your giving. Trust in Jesus. Have your quiet times. Read your Bible. Share your faith. But don't trust in those things. You place your trust in Jesus. Whenever you are tempted or even the evil one is tempting you to ask yourself, have I done enough? Tell him, tell yourself, no, but I got Jesus and that's enough. I got Jesus, and that's enough. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Y'all don't know that song. I got Jesus, and that's enough. Oh, yeah. You see this, beloved. <laughs> if somebody would give me a B flat, man, we <laughs> You see this in Paul's interrogation of them. He, he's insistent, and his insistence is that they would know these things. You see his indignation. You see his inquisition, his interrogation of them, asking these rhetorical questions that they should know the answer to. You and I must know the answer as well. But then it concludes with his insistence, doesn't he? And he insists on some things. In fact, I want to submit to you that he insists on three things. Notice what he says again in, in verse 7. He says, know this, doesn't he? He's all right. Just know this, Galatians. Know this. What does he want them to know? What are three things he wants them to know? Here is the end of the matter. Know this. One, that Abraham was saved just like you are. Okay, now this is important because you might think that, wow, he's just getting Abraham out of nowhere. Where did Abraham come from? Why is he throwing Abraham into the conversation? Beloved, because those who were coming in to the Galatian churches and trying to deceive them into moving away from the gospel of grace was trying to get them to understand that if they are going to be faithful and accepted like Abraham, they are going to have to become like Abraham, and Abraham was the father of the Jews. Abraham circumcised and circumcised his son, and Abraham, everybody after Abraham was circumcised, and therefore you must be circumcised because Abraham was the faithful father of God's people. And everybody loved Abraham. Well, Paul reminds them, however, and beloved, contrary to what you have heard, Abraham was saved just like you are by faith. Contrary, beloved, to what you might hear and indeed what I used to believe many, many years ago, there is not two ways of salvation in the Bible. People in the Old Testament didn't get saved by being circumcised and keeping the law of God and the new people in the New Testament get saved by believing in Jesus Christ. No. There are not two ways of salvation in the Bible. People in the Old Testament got saved the same way that you and I get saved, and that is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Salvation was never by circumcision. It was never by Sabbath keeping. It was never through bulls and goats and lambs. It has always been through faith. Abraham, Paul says, was saved by faith. By faith, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. By faith. Abraham's not, Abraham's not the only one. 
in the, in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 11, aren't we told that it was by faith that they all received from God their righteousness. By faith they were accepted by God. Abel by faith offered a superior sacrifice. Doesn't the Bible say? By faith. Enoch by faith did not die but was received up into heaven by faith. By faith, the Bible says, Noah, contrary to those around him, built the ark and believed God's word as God told him. By faith, Rahab received the spies into her home. By faith, Gideon fought the Midianites and conquered them. By faith, by faith, by faith, over and over and over again in the Old Testament, saints were in relationship with God by faith. So then, when it comes to the New Testament, beloved, contrary to what people like to say, God is not doing a new thing. It has always been, it will always be, by grace through faith, believing in God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. Paul says, know this. Abraham was saved just like you are. That's not all he wants to know. He says, and know this. You are Abraham's children by faith. This really gets to the heart of the matter. In fact, this right here is what Paul is going to be developing for chapter 3 and much of chapter 4, getting them and us to understand that we are children of Abraham, in other words, children of God by faith and by faith alone. The Jews thought themselves Abraham's children. This is where their pride came from. When they were dealing with Jesus and talking with Jesus, what did they say to Jesus? They, tell, they told Jesus that we are the children of Abraham. We are the offspring of Abraham, says in John chapter 8 and verse 33. And then in verse 39, they said, Abraham is our father. And what did Jesus say to him? Jesus said, well, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. And what did Abraham do? Abraham believed God. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus coming into the world. Abraham rejoiced in the God of his salvation, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you were truly Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. And beloved, Abraham's children are not those who are born of the flesh. But Abraham's children are those who have been born of the Spirit, who have been born again. Perhaps you've been to camp a time or two, as I have myself, and perhaps you sang the song. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons said, Father Abraham, I am one. Come on, everybody join in. So are you. So let's. Left foot, right foot. 
Beloved, it sounds trite. And indeed, when I was a young kid, I had no idea what that song was. I thought Abraham didn't have a whole bunch of sons. He had Isaac and Ishmael, and I'm running out. But there's some deep, deep truths in that song. Father Abraham has many sons and daughters for all those who believe in Jesus Christ by faith are children of Abraham. And they belong to God. You don't become a child of Abraham by being circumcised. You don't become a child of Abraham by keeping the Sabbath and the commandments. You become a child of Abraham by faith in Jesus. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. Daughters, sons of God, by faith. And Paul says, know this. Abraham was saved just like you are. Know this. That you are Abraham's children by faith. And finally, beloved, know this. That the gospel promised to Abraham is the same gospel preached to you. Now what he says. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel to Abraham, these words, In you shall all the nations be blessed. How is that the gospel? The next time somebody asks you, What is the gospel? Why don't you say, In you shall all the nations be blessed. You know you wouldn't say that. Then how is it that the scripture here can say that the gospel was preached to Abraham with the words, in you shall all the nations be blessed? Because, beloved, inherent in that statement is the promise of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So that Abraham was saved by the Jesus that is inherent in that statement. In that statement is Christ. Because the seed of Abraham, as Paul will let them know later on, the true son of Abraham in whom all the nations would be blessed, was not Isaac. It was Christ. And Abraham was saved, beloved, by the Christ promise in that statement, you and I are saved by the Christ fulfilled in that statement. It's the same Savior. It's the same salvation. And at the heart, beloved, there is the same gospel. There's only one. Always has been only one. You know, the gospel is like God. It doesn't change. 
Oh, yes, like with God, we grow in our understanding of it as God is pleased to reveal more and more and more of himself. But God doesn't change. Our understanding of him changes, evolves, grows, matures. So it is with the gospel, beloved. The gospel has always been the same. The only difference is we grow and we mature in our understanding of it as the revelation of it becomes more and more and more clear to us. Salvation has always been through Jesus. Always. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the promise to Adam and Eve is that God says, I'm coming. Jesus is coming. The promise to the nation of Israel as they are being redeemed out of Egypt. And God says, put the blood on the doorpost, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Whose blood? You think it's the blood of those lambs and the goats? No, beloved, it is the blood of Jesus. Always has been, always will be. All the way to the book of Revelation. What redeems, what secures, what satisfies, only the blood of Jesus. From beginning to end, beloved, it has always been Jesus. When John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by the river of Jordan where he's baptizing, John sees him and what does John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. That's the Lamb. That's the Lamb that was sacrificed in the Old Testament over and over again. Here he comes. That's the Lamb. That's the Ram that was in the bush that was sacrificed instead of Isaac. There he is. Here he comes. That is the Lamb that will silence all the other lambs. That's him. Because the gospel has always been, it always will be, found in Jesus, in Jesus only. It was preached to Abraham, and he believed it. It was preached to Peter, and he believed it. It was preached to Paul, and he believed it. Beloved, if we are saved this morning, it must be preached to us. And we believe it. The same gospel that saved Peter and saved Paul is the gospel that saves you and me. Always been the same. Always will be. Always will be. And Paul asked a series of rhetorical questions, but didn't he? He's probing, insightful, important questions. And yet, beloved, I would suggest to you this, this morning that all those questions could really be boiled down into one question. Really. The whole passage boiled down just this one simple question. How does a sinful man or woman stand in right relationship to a holy and righteous God? That's the question. That is the question. You know, there's a popular uh, method of evangelism with tracts and, and everything called evangelism explosion. 
And Evangelism Explosion is based on asking this simple question of someone. As you're engaging with them with the gospel and the message of Christ, it suggests that you ask them, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If, I, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Beloved, the answer to that question for the Galatians is not because you got circumcised. It's not because you kept the Sabbath. Why would God let you into heaven? It's not because you've been baptized. It's not because you give to the church. It's not because you attend the church. It's not because you serve in the church. It's not because you sing so well. It's not because you treat your pets nice. And contrary to popular belief, it's not because you die. The only answer to that question, beloved, has been the answer that God has always given to those who would hear. Because you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Jesus alone. Only Jesus will do. Only Jesus will do because only Jesus has done. Here is perhaps the most probing and important question ever asked in the Bible. It's Acts chapter 20 and Acts chapter 16 and verse 30. Very simply, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And what's the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, and you shall be saved. And no ands, buts, no buts. Anything else, beloved, anything else is a scam. Anything else is a scheme. Anything else is a game. I'm telling you. You can come up here and try it if you want to. But without Jesus, you can't win. Only Jesus will do. Let's pray.